You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Acts. Here's Nate. Well, as we turn to the middle of Acts chapter 20, we have to remember that Paul had spent over two years serving Christ in Ephesus. And I think that the church in Ephesus, the city of Ephesus, the ministry that happened there, became for Paul a just a beautiful memory of God's grace. I think that he learned a lot about the way that God would use and work through his life. Of course, we know that in his latter years, so much of his ministry would be from the seated position. In other words, he would go to Jerusalem and eventually be arrested and would for many years be in prisons, uh, both in Caesarea but also in Rome. And during that time, Paul would be able to operate as an effective minister of the gospel. People would come to him and he would send them out. Uh, people would come to him and he would write letters that would go out. And I think that Paul began to learn that pattern of ministry there in Ephesus. Because it was there that for two years he rented the school of Tyrannus and he taught and taught and taught. And in two years time, all of Asia Minor had heard the word of the Lord. So it had a special place in Paul's heart. He had learned about that seated position kind of ministry, I think, there in Ephesus. Now, as we pick up the story in the middle of Acts chapter 20, we are witnessing Paul traveling quickly in an attempt to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. And presumably because he couldn't make it there by Passover, and so he's going to, rather than pass through Ephesus to visit the church, knowing that that will take him too much time to be able to get to Jerusalem by Passover, he'll stop at the island of Miletus and speak to the Ephesian pastors. So Luke records for us in verse 13, But going ahead by ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there. For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by Land. So they took the sea route and he took the land route and the sea route that they were taking actually was a pretty long journey. So Paul probably could have beaten them there and had another couple of days of ministry there entire. And when he met us at Asos, verse 14, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos and the day after that we went to Miletus. For Paul, verse 16, had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So here it's fascinating because what Paul is going to do on the island of Miletus is he's going to spend time with the pastors, the leaders of the church in Ephesus. And in doing that, he's going to avoid the general congregation. 
Now, it's not that Paul didn't love the general congregation. He he did. He loved them so much that he feared that if he arrived in Ephesus, the love would have started to flow and it would have taken too much time and that he would not have been able to make it to Jerusalem by the day of Pentecost. And I think that he wanted to get there to Jerusalem because he had a financial gift from the various churches throughout Asia, throughout Macedonia and Achaia that he wanted to bring to the church in Jerusalem. So in a sense, it's as if the money is burning a hole in his pocket. He can't wait to deliver this financial gift. Now, the elders from the church in Ephesus are going to gather to Paul here. And the message that follows is absolutely beautiful. Luke records eight messages from the Apostle Paul throughout the book of Acts. Uh, Many of the messages are evangelistic. Uh, Many of the messages are apologetic. There are times that he's speaking to Jews. There are times that he's speaking to Gentiles. And there are times that he's speaking to government officials. But here he's speaking to pastors. And, well, the other messages might be more apostolic or missionary-based. This message is very pastoral. Paul, as a fellow elder, is going to speak to the pastors, the elders, the overseers of the church uh, there in Ephesus. Now, it tells us in verse 18, And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this message from Paul is actually broken up into a handful of movements. And the first movement here In verse 18 to 21, is Paul holding out to the Ephesian pastors what his ministry style was like, his example of service to the church there in Ephesus. And it's actually very instructive for anybody who is wanting to be used by God in the body of Christ, in the church world, in ministry today. And the first thing that he tells them is that his ministry was a very public ministry, that his life was a public life. He said, I lived among you. In other words, everyone was watching this life of mine. They were watching how I taught, how I lived, how I spent, how I lived my life. They were watching everything that I did. And this can be hard for people who get into the ministry. They don't understand that People are watching their every move. Sometimes this is right. Sometimes this is wrong, but it just is. Now, with many, that public lifestyle could breed a false religiosity. You know, a certain kind of face in public that is not replicated in private. But when you're a person like Paul, who has a legitimate walk with the Lord, It will do the same kind of thing that it did for Paul in you. It will breed a transparency 
in your life. You'll understand that you're far from perfect. Paul called himself the chiefest of sinners, but you'll also realize that you're called to be the same publicly as you are privately, and that when you are in private, you do not get a pass in those moments to begin to flesh out and and all of that. No, you want to continue to be a sanctified individual. Now, we also learn here that not only is it a public ministry, but it's a hard ministry. Paul talked about the humility with which he served the Ephesians and the tears and the trials. He talked about the plots of the Jews and even though Acts 19 does refer to a rejection from the Jews, we don't actually have a record of the plots of the Jews. In fact, if anything, what we have in Acts 19 is the Gentile world lashing out against Paul because of his ministry's effect upon the sale of the idol, the false god Diana or Artemis. But Paul alludes here to tears and trials that were brought on by the plots of the Jews. Now, Paul's trials, of course, were massive in relationship to ours. But still, someone wanting to serve the Lord needs to brace themselves for financial trials, for emergency trials, for slander trials, for doctrinal dispute trials, for trials of pettiness. They will abound in the body of Christ. Not only that, but Paul also said there in verse 20 and 21 that he did not shrink from declaring anything that was profitable. And he talked about the way that he ministered the word of God. He taught it publicly, he said. He taught it house to house, he said, which is probably a description rather than a prescription for the modern church, a description of what was in Ephesus, not a prescription for modern times, and probably helps us understand how the church in Ephesus was organized, various house churches with pastors presiding over each one, wealthy members of the congregation opening up their large homes for large groups of believers to be able to gather together. But notice that when Paul taught the word publicly and also house to house, he also taught repentance and faith. That meant that he was confronting sin and he was confronting doctrine. Because when you're preaching faith, uh, you are preaching doctrine. You are combating works righteousness. And when you're preaching repentance, you are confronting sin. So Paul was boldly declaring the word of God. So he had a public ministry, a hard ministry, and a word of God ministry. Now, the second move of Paul's message to the Ephesian elders begins in verse 22. He says, and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Now, here Paul begins to talk about the future in uh, his life and ministry. And he tells them that he knows that a moment is coming where, because the Spirit has testified of this, that he will be actually imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. And he's telling them, the Holy Spirit is preparing for me imprisonment and afflictions. Now, don't worry, he says in verse 24, but I do not count my life of any value 
nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You know, sometimes we wonder, how did Paul endure all of this? All of this trial, all this difficulty, all these imprisonments and rejections. And we also might wonder, how did Paul, you know, not account his life as valuable unto himself? And I don't think that Paul was just a man who loved the challenge and loved the hardship. You know, you might be an extreme person, but eventually you're going to get tired of the things that Paul endured. But for Paul, the reason that he was able to serve the Lord in this way and count his life as nothing is because he said it right there in verse 24. It's the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. Paul knew who he was ultimately serving. It was Jesus. And he had been impacted by the very gospel that Christ had brought to him. And if a person does not receive the gospel of grace once and again and again and again in their lives, then it will be impossible for them to say, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If you cannot get the gospel repeatedly into your heart as Paul had, if you cannot remember that I am serving Jesus, the one who experienced the most humility, the deepest tears and the greatest of trials, that he experienced the hardship of the truthful declaration of God's word. He experienced the uncertain certainty of future difficulties. If you cannot realize that, and internalize that in your heart, you will not be able to agree with Paul and say, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. Paul then continued talking about his future when he said in verse 25, And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now, a couple of fascinating things here. One is that Paul seemed rather certain that he would never see this group ever again. Now, it does appear from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9 to 13, that Paul did get to later return to Ephesus after the events of the book of Acts were recorded by Luke. Perhaps Paul was wrong, which is fine and possible. Perhaps that group of elders dispersed and did other ministry, and, and they never saw him again, but the church in Ephesus saw him again. But Paul says to them that he's innocent of the blood of all. He's borrowing from the imagery in Ezekiel chapter 33, where God talks about the watchman over the city who is supposed to warn the citizens of any coming invasion that he sees and that if he's silent that that the blood of the city is upon his head but paul is announcing look i testified i am innocent of the blood of all because i have declared what is coming and and he says it in this way because i did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of god now, I know that some have interpreted that to mean that what, that what Paul is saying is that he gave to the church in Ephesus the entirety of the Bible, every verse of 
the Old Testament at that time. You know, obviously, this can't mean that he taught all 66 books of the Bible because many of the books of the Bible, you know, in the New Testament had yet to be written at this point. It appears that what Paul is saying is that he had faithfully communicated God's word, especially in a way where he had elucidated the gospel. It'd be hard to imagine him saying, I'm innocent of the blood of all because I've taught every verse of the Old Testament. That would put modern preachers in a pretty perilous situation. But what you're learning throughout the Bible is that an accurate explanation of the good news is what God is looking for to bring you to a place of innocence about the blood of those surrounding you. So Paul seems to be declaring that very thing. Now, in the next movement of Paul's message, he gives warnings to the elders there in Ephesus. He says in verse 28, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Now, here what he's announcing is to these pastors is a few different beautiful things. One, just devotionally, is that glorious statement that the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. In other words, the Holy Spirit had called them, chosen them, and gifted them. This was not a man-made role in operating as a pastor in the church. Uh, Also, it's beautiful because Paul now, in this short little section, has alluded to all of the titles that are used in the New Testament for pastors. Earlier in the chapter, he called for the elders of the church in Ephesus. Here, we see the title overseers. And then, although we don't have the word pastors, the word pastor is a word that comes from shepherd, and he alludes to the flock here. So these elders are also called overseers and are also, of course, pastors doing pastoral shepherding kind of work. And he looks at them and he says, look, you're here to care for the church of God, which Jesus obtained with his own blood. He bought that ecclesia with his own blood. And so in warning them, he says, verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And certainly when you read First and Second Timothy, you discover that fierce wolves and men speaking twisted things, even from among themselves, did arise among the church there in Ephesus. Uh, there were those who were twisting the law of God. Uh, there were those who were canceling out the harder elements of God's word and tickling the ears of the hearers. Now, by and large, though, Jesus's estimation of this church years later in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 to 7, is that they had stood fairly well. They had learned how to reject false teaching, but had stood their ground. They had left their first love, but they had stood their ground doctrinally. Now, in verse 32, Paul commends them fourthly in this message to God and his word. He says, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, 
which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So he just commits them to God and commits them to the word of his grace. He, he, in other words, is trusting that they do not need the apostle. They need God and his word. And this is so important when it comes to the spiritual development of God's people, that we would be connected to God, that we'd be connected to his word. It's rather interesting to see this man, Paul, say, look, it's not for you to be connected to me and then to successive versions of me in the church. His commendation is, I want you to be connected to God and to the word of his grace. And then finally, the last movement of the message, Paul holds out to them his life as an example of generosity. He says, I coveted, verse 33, no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. So a few fascinating things there. First of all, he says, I did not covet your belongings when I was there in Ephesus. Secondly, he says, I worked. You know, my hands provided for my own needs and for those that were with me. And he certainly had. And then thirdly, he says that he had worked hard, not just to help himself, but also to help the weak. And then he had done this, fourthly, because it was more blessed to give than to receive, as Jesus himself had said. Now, you can't go back to the Gospels and find this word from Jesus. It's more blessed to give than to receive. This might be a synopsis of Jesus' teaching, but I think it's probably more than that, perhaps oral tradition or maybe even a vision that Paul himself had of the Lord saying it's more blessed to give than to receive. But all together, we take that last section as an exhortation in our modern era to live lives of great generosity. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Now, in chapter 21, the journey continues and says, And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. Probably what Luke is doing is recording each day's journey. First Kos, then the next day we got to Rhodes, then the next day to Patera. And verse 2, Having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, the massive island out in the middle of the Mediterranean, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there at Tyre for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So they're getting closer to Jerusalem at this point. And they have one more boat ride to sail down the coast of, you know, there on the Mediterranean down to Caesarea in northern Israel. But first, seven days of ministry with the church in Tyre. And 
the people there were through the Spirit telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days, verse 5, were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. So they knelt down, which was significant enough for Luke to mention, like this is a new thing, the kneeling down and praying there on the beach. And just the love that was there in the church was so notable, so beautiful. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, verse 7, we arrived at Ptolemy, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Now, here we see Paul and Philip the Evangelist, in a sense, reunited. You could say that Paul was the man who had driven Philip from Jerusalem. Because 20 years earlier, it had been at Stephen's death that Saul had consented to his death and then had begun to stir up a larger persecution against the church. And it was that wave of persecution that had driven Philip from Jerusalem down to Samaria, where he had preached the gospel in Acts chapter 8, and was then told by the Lord to go down to Gaza, which is desert wilderness, where he preached to the Ethiopian eunuch, and then after that was translated away from there to, I think, Asos, and then finally journeyed on up the coast to Caesarea, and apparently he'd been living there for the last 20 years. And how wild to see this man, who is now considered an evangelist in the church, reconciled to the man that drove him from Jerusalem two decades earlier. The body of Christ is a beautiful place, and this is one of those reconciliations that is only possible in him. Now, I love the note that he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. He apparently was a good father. He had been able to see what Jacob and David and Samuel could not see in their own families, his children loving and serving the Lord. And of course, it is fascinating to us that his female daughters, his female offspring, they had the gift of prophecy given to them. So this is not a gift or an office that is limited to men, it seems. Now, of course, we do understand from the New Testament that the office of a pastor, and we would assume also in connection to that, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers, these are male offices, as the Holy Spirit calls. However, the gift of prophecy is given to these women, so they don't have the office of the prophet, but they do prophesy and are gifted in that way. So if you want to call that some kind of minor office uh, or ministry of a prophet in a church, uh, they had that gift. They were able to speak forth the word of the Lord with power. Now, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And we might remember Agabus from Acts chapter 11 because he had uh, years earlier foretold of a famine that would take place throughout the world at that time. And coming to us, verse 11, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, 
Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. Kind of a wild moment here when Agabus takes Paul's belt and ties it around his wrists and said, Whoever owns this belt is going to be bound in Jerusalem. Everybody there took that as a way for God to warn Paul not to go to Jerusalem. But Paul, Luke records, would not be persuaded. Paul already knew, of course, that he was heading into harm's way. He knew that he was heading into bondage. He did not count his life dear to himself. We already saw. And I think that this was pure love that was pumping out of Paul's heart. He had been set free by Christ but not to use as an opportunity for his flesh, but to serve one another, Galatians 5.13. And the question that we might ask is, should have Paul persisted in going to Jerusalem? You know, he'd been warned by Jesus that Jerusalem would not receive his ministry. We'll learn in chapter 22 when we get to verse 17 and Paul's testimony of a vision that he had from Jesus. Jesus had told him years earlier, Jerusalem will not receive your ministry. He said in Acts chapter 20, verse 23, that he had been warned in every city that suffering awaited him there in Jerusalem. And now here in Tyre and in Caesarea through Agabus, the prophet, he is warned again. Perhaps these warnings were meant to stop him, or perhaps these warnings were meant to bolster him in his mission. I tend to think that the warning was simply meant to encourage and strengthen him to be bold as he went, to have courage as he went, not to be discouraged when they rejected his message. But the believers around Paul interpreted these warnings in a different way. They interpreted these warnings as a way for God to say, don't go. Either way, Paul's motivation was love, and Christ loves that. Like Jesus, Paul set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. And God used the imprisonment that would come because Paul became a prolific New Testament author, partly while in prison. And so they all decided and said, well, then let the will of the Lord be done. We'll just rest in God's sovereignty. And, you know, Paul had said in Acts 20 that he had been constrained by the spirit to go. And Luke records that Paul had resolved in the spirit to go. And the Lord had told him that he would witness before kings and governors, which he did partly as a result of the arrest that was coming. So I think that Paul was right in step with the will of the Lord in going to Jerusalem. It says, verse 15, that after these days we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple, perhaps a believer before even the cross of Christ, an early follower of Jesus, with whom we should watch. God bless you. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.